whether or not I see like the economics not working for that specific part of real estate in my shop or whether I see that as like, oh no, here comes more co-working space. Am I going to be out of business? Those, those just don't seem like concerns to me. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm so excited to share today's interview with you. I spoke with TJ Fairchild, the co-founder of Commonplace Coffee. Now, if you are like me and have something of an insane caffeine addiction, then you probably have frequented a wide range of coffee shops. Everything from the large corporate titans, Dunkin', Starbucks, Panera, to the little hole-in-the-wall one-off shops in main streets all over the United States. In my travels around the city of Pittsburgh and elsewhere, I have found Commonplace, his company, to be one of my all-time favorites. And in this interview, we not only talk about the origins of the business and what makes for a soulful coffee shop experience, but also the way in which TJ thinks about the people that come into his shop as both employees and as customers. I think you'll love it. He is a refreshingly honest and thoughtful dude. Here is TJ Fairchild. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, this is a little bit deeper than I would usually start a podcast interview, but uh, a piece of content that you put out opened the door for me. Uh, if you found out that you were going to die in one day and you had to figure out how to spend that day, what is uh, an activity that you would want to take up part of that last day? Wow. How did I start this? You posted on LinkedIn about uh, working behind the counter oh and how goodness. that was one of the things you'd want to do. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's that's where I thought you were going. And really, I did have kind of a an epiphany moment a few weeks ago working behind the bar in the Mexican war streets. We, we had a client up from Miami, so I needed to kind of be hovering around to be available in case things got too busy. Cause some of my staff at the Mexican war streets commonplace were working with him. So I volunteered to jump on bar, which I don't get to do every day. And I just had that moment in the middle of having the bar experience of just being overwhelmed of, <laughs> I can't believe you started with this. It's amazing. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> you got to me. Um, I don't know. I was, I was meeting people that I hadn't met before. I was seeing people that I hadn't seen in a year and a half because of the pandemic. And it was just overwhelming. It was exactly why Julie and I opened Commonplace in the beginning. We were connecting with people and having this moment. And then I was also in that kind of frame of mind helping with this client, seeing my staff kind of uh, evolving in their positions as well, helping to train this client. Um, it was one of those moments where I, I got in my car to drive home and it was, it was overwhelming. And I realized in that moment, I'm doing exactly what I would want to do on the last day of, of my day on earth. And did you, did you have a more specific question about that? I feel like there was some did you say how I would spend the day? Well, yeah, how how you would spend the day. I I I'm maybe that would be all twenty four hours or uh, yeah. if you have your allotted waking moments. Yet you've got family, so I'd imagine that they would be incorporated somewhere there. But absolutely, I, I just yeah. think I think it's fascinating. I think most people would struggle 
to answer that, mostly because they probably aren't considering that, although you could argue they should be. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by that question. <laughs> I wouldn't say over every day, and I'm not overwhelmed in the sense of like I can't process it, but it's just um, moments will happen in my life and I'll think of like a movie that brought me there or maybe just the question as I'm driving and um, I have some free time with my space or with my head and my brain space just goes to that question of like, what would I really want to do? Like, what's the last thing I kind of want to go out with? Um, and I don't know why I do that, but I just do it a lot. So it was fun to have a moment in my work. You know, I'm, I'm technically clocked in at this moment, having this moment of, of connection and understanding. This is really what I love to do with my life. And of course, my family is a huge priority. I, I would uh, put high on the list, taking a bicycle ride with my family. I can't, I can't get over how much joy that brings me to have all five of us out on a trail other than we have to leave our dogs. So if, if, uh, if you have any ideas of how to take our dogs bicycling, how big are they? I have a 90 pound and a 20 pound dog. (laughs) So (laughs) I could see the the 90 pound could probably like keep up at least for a while, but that might, other people might get uncomfortable. That's the only consideration I'd say there. Right. Yeah. We ride on pretty narrow trails, so I don't know that we'd have good space to have the dog set up next to us, but one of my all time favorite memories, uh, was a a dog that's now passed, but we took her up to, uh, seven Springs where there's some mountain biking trails and the family that we went with, they also had a dog and there was four of us biking and the two dogs and the dogs would just take off away from the trails but the one dog who was used to going mountain bike with him whistle they'd come crashing through the woods and i i can't remember which book it was maybe it was called the wild where they talked about like the dogs that were like laughing or or, like really expressing these emotions and maybe when i was younger i just wasn't cognizant of the dog having that (laughs) kind of emotional range but you saw them in their element while we were just raring through the woods like that and it is completely unambiguous that those dogs were in heaven. There was nothing they would mm, rather be right. doing, giving them more joy. Sounds like a yeah. little bit like you when you're biking with your fam. Exactly. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, let's take it back then. So you talked about why you wanted to get into the coffee business. It was clear to you. You were reflecting on it. Man, this is exactly why we started. But like, let's take it back to 2003 and give people a little bit more of a picture of the, the genesis point of starting a coffee shop, what it entailed, what challenges there were, and what the why was. That's a great question. The, the, the why for coffee in general was that we just loved the beverage. We loved what it produces, you know, just like what we're doing now, seated at a table and allowing thoughts and, and connection and, and finding out about each other. And, um, that is, has always appealed to me since I was a child. I grew up drinking coffee, stealing coffee from my mom's cup, or I grew up in Rhode Island in the the state drink is coffee milk, which was on all the kids' menus. It's a it's a milk beverage that they just add coffee syrup to, just like you would chocolate syrup to make chocolate milk. And uh, still the only place you can buy coffee syrup is in Rhode Island. Um, and it's one of our treats. We get to go in two weeks, so I'll get some coffee milk and I'll bring or coffee syrup and bring it back to you and you can try it if you'd like. Yeah. Not as much my favorite anymore, but it's still a nostalgic point. So coffee was always a big part of our lives, but in uh, college, we were confronted with like coffee house culture. And I described the first time I walked into a coffee house in Raleigh, North Carolina called Cup of Joe in I think 1994. 
having this kind of epiphany moment of like, wow, I've, I've made it home. I finally found the place that like, I, um, don't feel a little bit out of place. So, you know, I felt really at home in this space and it was a nineties second wave coffee shop with a smoking section. I mean, much different than a coffee house necessarily would be today, but that, that overall feel just appealed, appealed to me so much. So, so Julie and I grew as coffee hobbyists during college and also worked at coffee bars. I actually got a job at Cup of Joe and my wife did as well. And when we graduated from college and went to grad school, uh, we worked in coffee again. And, you know, it was always like this side thing, but it was such an important part of my life. And when we were done with grad school, we just, we kind of lacked direction. The thing that I had gone to grad school for kind of wasn't appealing to me anymore, finished the degree, didn't really want to continue in academia, um, but knew coffee was such a big part of my life. And, you know, the long story short is Indiana, Pennsylvania found us as coffee hobbyists. And when it found us, it presented to us a closed former cafe. So it was ridiculously easy to start a coffee shop because the plumbing and electrical was done. Bathrooms were done. It'd been inspected as a health facility, a food facility. So, um, we took the plunge. It was almost like accidental and not well thought out. We bootstrapped it with a little bit of cash from some, uh, friends and family. And we started with no expectation, almost an expectation to fail. And I don't think I would say it like that, March of 2003, but I don't, I definitely believe I didn't have a future to look at and say, this is what I want to be doing in five years, 10 years. It was an expectation that there would be another pivot in my life and it didn't happen. And why not? Why I thought we would fail is just because I didn't have a solid plan. Why not is because it worked, you know, not only did we start a coffee shop and, you know, again, the priority was the table. The priority was the people, the engagement. Coffee was always a hobby and important, but people were the forefront and it worked. Our desire to connect with people worked, whether it was a one-on-one relationship with a guest or with the, the staff or with our vendors. I mean, I'm so excited to say that, um, you know, we've been open 18 years. We've had the same milkman that delivers our milk in yeah. our store that's still, and I started my day this morning in a shop that has been open since the very beginning. Like that's been ridiculously important to us and that just worked. The, the human connections worked and it, it caused us to network and try their things with our business and get into roasting and get into helping other people open coffee shops that turned into us establishing other retail spaces. Beautiful. So I want to get into the consulting with other people that are opening coffee shops, but I, I want to table that to just even maybe give some people some basics of coffee business generally. I know that you guys are wholesaling. I've seen the the packages. You've done different collabs where someone can get some commonplace mm-hmm. coffee and it's, you know, the Shenley Parker, the Frick Park <laughs> uh, collab bag. Um, but, you know, at its core, uh, a coffee shop, if, if you're starting that for the first time, it's Basically, correct me if I'm wrong, how many feet are coming in the door Mm. to buy a cup Mm -hmm. because there's, you know, a marginal cost to brew the coffee, a marginal cost to get that cardboard, paper, plastic, whatever the cup was, a material, and the labor involved to make that a reality. And and you get enough of those with the margin of a coffee cup and you're not going to fail, right? Absolutely. 
a little bit of rent. What else? What else is there? What else? Other considerations that might people overlook? I mean, I would consider having a quality coffee bean, but you're absolutely right. Feet in the door is is crucial. If you don't have X number of people based on what your overhead capture is going to be, your total list of liabilities, then you can never get it. And the, and the opposite's true too. You could have the most amazing no overhead, low rent. But even with the amount of people it would take to get that capture, you're not going to get enough revenue to keep that project going. So one thing that we always talk about is making sure that your all of your liabilities are in conjunction to what you expect your gross sales are or what your expectation of the people that are going to walk through your door. You've got to be where the people are. And as sad as it is, you know, I used to argue all the time that quality is what sold coffee, but really convenience is what sells coffee. If you're not around where people are, there's no way, even with that marginal cost, you know, of the product and the, the things that you have to use as consumables with that product, if you don't have the people there, you're not going to hit it, you know, cause that, cause not only is it marginal cost, you're also marginal revenue total, you know, great profit margin but it's all at low ticket value. So you just have to have a lot of people or else you'll never hit your your money to continue. And another analogy that I've heard, you can push back on this if you don't agree, it, but agree with it, but you, you can say over the last decade, there's been this co-working uh, run-up culminating with the WeWork IPO fiasco. And you know, for the folks that are unfamiliar with co-working, it's, hey, we're going to give you this uh, maybe day rate or week rate or month rate to have a desk or a series of desks. And you're basically getting the macro piece of real estate for a, a per square foot lower cost than you're charging. And that's where your margin comes from. And someone once argued that a coffee shop could be seen in a similar way because there's plenty of people that come to that coffee shop to sit and read, sit and work. And the little bit of square footage that they might occupy is instead of a rent payment, is in the form of that payment for the the cup of Joe, which might be free if you go into WeWork. Did you ever think about it that way? Does that seem like a fair analogy or not quite? I mean, I think about it from the operational side, like do I want squatters is what, you know, sometimes what's called, or do I want folks that are using coffee shops as an office? Like we think about it from an operational standpoint, you know, will this get in the way of our project, our overall project, if really what we're desiring is conversation and connectedness in a shop, in a shop, do we want individuals on laptops? Um, But I think what you're asking for is more of like the business model aspect and not from an operational standpoint. I I think both of those are are tied together though, right? Because I'm coming at it as an outsider, maybe, maybe overly financialized, overly formulaic. And you're the operator. You're the person that has the nine locations that's actually capable of building uh, a mini coffee empire here. I've got no such bona fide. So I, w- I want to know how you think about it. I don't want to just have my perspective out. Okay. The way I think about it is it's my fault if I haven't selected an amazing enough location to get the revenue capture that I need from the total fee in the door. I always want space for people to occupy the coffee house, whether it's for work, for silent reading, for connecting with a friend. So whether or not I see like the economics not working for that specific part of real estate in my shop or whether I see that as like, oh no, here comes more co-working space. Am I going to be out of business? Those, those just don't seem like concerns to me because if I found the right location, I'm going to have a healthy enough mix between people that walk through the door, 
that get a coffee and are just going to leave and walk their dog or go back to work or go back home or whatever their whatever their next uh, part of their day is with a healthy mix of people hanging out and spending time there and using uh, the desks or the tables as desks. Gotcha. And then I also wanted to understand more about the equipment that's required. Maybe you can like tell us the story since 2003 and you're adding locations, but you're also adding different businesses and maybe becoming more efficient. What is the, uh, you know, equipment that you would argue is incumbent upon any coffee shop that needs to open and how have you added to the collection of equipment that you now use to bring people their coffee? Well, that's a fun question too. I mean, gear, uh, I love motorcycles are like one of my absolute favorite things, which is hilarious. That one of my not... last questions, I just want you to see it here. <laughs> what can you teach me about Italian motorcycles is oh, waiting for you at the end. Wow. And Sorry you to picked throw Italian. You off. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, but it, but motorcycles have been such a big part of my life and I, it's a big hobby as well, you know, as coffee has been. Um, so equipment in coffee has somewhat not replace that love, but like equipment and coffee house is very similar. In fact, when you, when you show your last question with, with, um, the adjective of Italian motorcycles, I mean, that's the most, you know, what we play with in espresso equipment as well as Italian manufacturers, or at least design their design cues are taken from Italian uh, designers, you know? So I don't, I geek out about equipment. I love it. I get excited about it, but it's very simple. Like if I, if I was dealing, if I was going to open a coffee shop, I would need basically five pieces of coffee and espresso equipment. Okay. Then some refrigeration, tables and chairs. What are the five? Can you take me through? So the five pieces of equipment would be an espresso machine, a regular espresso grinder, a decaf espresso grinder, a coffee brewer, and a coffee grinder. Okay. Relatively simple. And then how did you, how have you expanded since it, like, is that what you started with in the early days in 2003? And what did you... Absolutely crucial to have those minimally five pieces. We've done some experimentation with, um, obviously we do pour over coffee, manual brew, which we can use all of that equipment for then just buy some drippers. Um, but then we've also gotten interested in, um, some of the robotic single cup pour over equipment. We were very early adopters of what was called Clover Coffee Brewing, which was started by uh, Xander Nosler. He was the chief engineer and Howard Schultz bought the company outside of Starbucks, but then kind of um, brought it into the Starbucks model for a while. That was really fun. But then there are competitors because Howard Schultz scooped that up. There were several other competitors that we've played with. We may have gotten a newer style of espresso machine that would allow for some adjustment of the pump pressure as that pump, as the water is going through the coffee puck. But by and large, those are the five pieces of equipment. And if you don't have those, you probably aren't going to have a coffee shop or anything where you can make coffee delicious. And then have you start, you've started to roast as well? Correct. Yeah. So what's, what goes into that? Within a year, we started roasting in our first retail store. Um, and we first bought a very small commercial one pound coffee roaster um, and have upgraded seven or eight times since then. Um, but basically, you would just need some bins, a roaster, uh, somewhere to cup your coffee that's away from the roasting environment so it won't affect your um, olfactory senses as much and really dig in and taste that coffee. Maybe some more grinders if you're going to do it for at a large scale. Yeah. So 
why and how did you move into the roasting of the beans so quickly? Because I'm also just thinking simplicity steak, right? Like, yeah. you know, someone gets into a business and maybe they have kind of a, a core competency or a core uh, in arena in which they can be differentiated. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't sound like going from hosting a coffee shop to roasting coffee is that much of a divergence or lack of focus, but sometimes that occurs in business generally. So just take me through that decision. It, it seemed no, to be you, going well enough that you would make that investment. No, you're absolutely right. It is a distraction. And if I had been smarter when I started Commonplace, I probably wouldn't roast. You know, if I had had like a business plan and tried to stick with that and had revenue projections and expectations of certain things, I would have been doing that. But really it was just a coffee hobbyist that still really hadn't grown up yeah. in a lot of ways, especially in business and loved coffee so much that I was just ridiculously curious. And one of my jobs, I actually did spend some time on a roaster. So, you know, I was in the coffee world already like feeling and touching, seeing, smelling coffee roasting. So it was a very natural thing for me to like want to do. It wasn't a part of the original plan. There wasn't really an original plan, but we did it. And almost immediately after turning the roaster on, firing up the coffee and having a few examples of the coffee to actually showcase and talk to our regulars and our guests that were coming in. We had two people approach us to ask us to help them with their coffee programs. Wow. So, I mean, that pivot of roasting is really start is really what started what is today our business model. If we hadn't done that within the year of opening, I don't know if we would have ever gotten into this segment at all. And maybe I would still be a single coffee house operator. How did that unlock more? So we, we talked with um, Bill Saris from Saris Candies, and he talked about how, you know, one avenue is their wholesaling business where they're you know providing the, the chocolate for someone else to do. They have the people that come directly into their store. They have the people that are selling through retail. They have the p kids that they're uh, buying the pretzels through the school sales. And they have these kind of differentiated revenue streams that make the business a little bit more anti-fragile, give it a kind of maybe higher upside, arguably. It sounds like that was the start of that for what you built. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, di diversifying was amazing. Again, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was uh, just serving people coffee, got excited about roasting, got into that. And then I found myself now trying to care for other people's businesses as much as my own. Um, I wasn't thinking about the fact that it was kind of... Um, I don't know what's the word, somewhat bulletproofing. I don't know what's the word because it's not bulletproof. I'd say anti-fragile, maybe diversifying. Okay. Yeah, you that's could beautiful. Anti-fragile. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't do that on purpose. It happened. And it happened as a result of me kind of, you know, the curiosity was a part, but it was also realizing an opportunity that was unique in Western Pennsylvania as these years are unfolding when you think about specialty coffee, in 2004 was the first time the concept third wave was spoken. Can you explain what that means? I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, absolutely. So that there was a, an actual pivot in specialty coffee to pay attention. You know, the short answer is to pay attention more about the, more to the chemistry okay. of coffee. Um, rather than if the second wave was atmosphere and what I loved, you know, table culture, human culture, human connectivity. If that was second wave, the third wave is let's pay attention more to coffee. So as I start roasting coffee, this opportunity happened in the segment of my business that was monumental. And that's, 
that's kind of beautiful, right? To think about like, and, and cross compatible to how many other businesses. The point is, as we're roasting and we're paying attention to the shift in coffee, our competitors in this market in Western Pennsylvania as a whole, especially in roasting, there were a few players in retail coffee that were paying attention, but no, nobody, I'm going to cautiously say nobody in the 2004, five, six range, nobody was paying attention to that. Nobody was as a roaster in Western Pennsylvania, definitely in Indiana. And I would argue even in Pittsburgh was none of them were like really paying attention to that. So I had active people asking me questions and it was something as simple as, um, when I would get in the car after we started roasting and we started having a little bit of interaction in Pittsburgh, I would just take scales. I bought 10 or $15 digital scales online and I just had 50 of them in a case in the back of my car. And I would go to a coffee shop expecting they didn't have a scale in 2003 and four or a little earlier, most coffee shops in Pittsburgh were, were volume measuring their drip coffee to water ratio in a brewer right? Okay. When you measure by volume coffee, their density is different in each bean. The grind size will always be different potentially if you're doing different brew methods. So there's no way to accurately measure the amount of coffee to water ratio with volume. So just bringing a scale in. So third wave coffee is really just the exploration of getting behind the bar in a coffee bar and really digging into the science, the craft, the chemistry of the coffee. And thankfully, we just at an opportune time started roasting, paying attention to that. And our market was hungry for it or yeah. thirsty. We should say thirsty <laughs> yeah. for it. So under caffeinated for it. <laughs> uh, not for long. Um, so in the effort, so we talked about there being nine locations. We talked about you being on this specific wave of being cognizant to these things that other players weren't. I hear your kind of passion for this uh, it, I it's very apparent to anyone listening the depth of knowledge that you have just from the experiences and the kind of mindfulness and the focus that you bring to this specific domain and I've spoken with uh, I spoke, spoke with a gentleman who runs an Italian restaurant in town and what he talked about being a struggle was that back home in Italy someone working in a restaurant having a, a career in the restaurant business is completely normalized, celebrated at, at like a cultural level, it kind of gets the thumbs up from, hey, that's what you're doing with your life? Fantastic. Interesting. But what he has struggled with as someone who is an immigrant to the United States is that for many people, working in a restaurant is something of a way station. I'm doing this because I'm trying to break into acting. I'm doing this while I get through college. I'm doing this while, and there's kind of this uh, presupposition that it is one of the early lily pads on a lifetime of many. And when I hear the importance and the severity and the seriousness with which you take this, it's not to say that someone couldn't learn that if they weren't seeing it as one of their lily pads, the same way that your past experiences in the coffee business serve there. But it does, it does presuppose a degree of mindfulness and earnestness and focus that might not always be the case with someone who is kind of in a more way station type of frame of mind. So when you think about expanding to these different locations and finding someone who is going to be responsible for maintaining the consistent ratio of water to bean weight 
as it goes through your machines that you've invested in, in these locations you've invested in, how are you ensuring that that standard is upheld when you're jumping around to all these different places? Mm. Wow, I thought you were going somewhere else with the, uh, what, status feel as a restaurateur in Italy versus the United States. Yeah. Now I'm in a different shift. That was really fun, by the way. How do we ensure? I mean, we've we, one of the hardest things for me, and this actually almost was my, I, I had a few kind of closing challenges I wanted to share with, with everyone today. And one of them was about <laughs> this very notion. It was very difficult for me, especially, be, especially because I was not planning to be a business guy, right? I was planning to actually be in academics. It was very hard for me to, to know how to manage and to be a good leader. And I failed miserably often. And that was a very difficult thing for me to when I would start a project and I would have a ton of energy and get so excited. And then when I would go to pass the baton off to someone, wow, that was what, sometimes I didn't offer the baton soon enough. Sometimes I'd offer it, but not let go. Sometimes there wouldn't be anyone there and I'd drop the baton, you know, and the employees are like, what's going on? Who's leading us here? Right. So the, the answer to your question is finding amazing people that share your passion and share core values, or at least are willing to align themselves with your core values, equipping them to do the job that you don't have the time to do, that you've kind of created a job for in doing what you love to do, and then letting them lead, you know, letting them actually do it. That was a really hard thing for me. You know, I wouldn't have been able to say it in the moment. I thought I was letting them lead, but so often I would come in and, and try to, correct, you know, course correct something that I, it was all my fault. I didn't teach well, you know, I didn't help train them well. And then I'm mad at them for not executing on the level that I never shared my expectations with. So that's been a really tough thing for me to learn as um, someone that wasn't prepared to do this, had no expectation of growth and scaling, and then having to find these key people that would love the product as much as I do, love the guests as much as I do, love their fellow employees and the vendors, and think about where the coffee came from as much as I do. So maybe we can divert towards that direction you thought I was going from the status conversation, which is another thing that that restaurateur said was basically, you know, the notion of hospitality is not only kind of arguably more revered, but it does carry with it a certain status that is not always present in this specific American culture. And what I've always sensed, I, I told you this before we started recording, is, you know, Hannah and I both love going to Common Place, getting a coffee there. My wife and I love going there on the weekends. Like it is it is something that, you know, 18 years in, you have at least one rabid fan who's vocalizing that other people should go check it out if they haven't already. And part of that is because of the sense of hospitality that you get when you walk in there. You said it from the beginning, the across the table, the conversation, but the general welcomeness with which every uh, employee on your team that I've interacted with greets me with every time I, I come in there. So There's maybe maybe I'll just open a door there and you can riff a little bit on the, the status idea or any anywhere else that your mind went before that my question didn't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I want to go like 15 different ways with that. I mean, it, it's, it is a really fascinating question. I, I love the fact that I get to say so often when I'm in a room where I'm obviously not I don't want to say obviously not feel like I should obviously not be there, you know, maybe with like 
people as I would describe them as a little bit higher up on the uh, status chart than I am. I love being able to say, oh, I just do coffee, you know, and I love I love the reactions like your your friend described where people would say to me, oh, well, what's next? You know, I've had people in my own shop say that to me. Like, oh, what are you, what are you going to do when you grow up? I've had people say, or what are you, what are you planning to do next? Or, you know, and it, it doesn't bother me at all. Like, so I'm kind of the wrong person to talk to about that. Cause I think it's kind of fun. I'm so ridiculously happy. You know, I am making more money than I thought I would make when I was in academia, which isn't a ton still, but uh, I get to spend time with my family. I get to spend time with humans. Um, so I, I don't really care about that part of it. Do you think there's also a degree, though, to which it is the opportunity because it gets overlooked by folks like that? Or would you not buy that notion? I really don't know. Like, that's such a great question. I really don't know why food and beverage, hospitality, restaurant, coffee shop, some of my employees make more money than I do. You know, if they're in the right store getting, you know, working the right shifts with tips, they can easily make more money. So it's not about a money thing, right? It's it's what are we expecting? Are we expecting more suit wearing? Are we expecting more of a job title? I really don't know what the expectation, I know it exists, but I don't know why. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah. I think that to agree that there's, there's some degree of to be the one being served just is, mm. is where, you know, you, you think about like the cultural memes, you talked about like a, a movie or something. Yeah. It's lovely. Usually the, the camera is transfixed on, you know, there's a reason the help was like, a very kind of specifically different genre of movie because it wasn't so focused exclusively on those that were being served. Mm-hmm. James Bond is always getting the martini made, not necessarily <laughs> making not, the martini for everyone. You the know? hero is not coming out from behind the bar. Exactly. It's <laughs> funny. It's interesting. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. I also wanted to, so I was reading the accountability report that you guys did for uh, last year. And maybe we can just start at a 101 level. Just explain for folks that might not be familiar what the, like, the definition of fair trade coffee is, why it's important. And then we can talk a little bit about the specific efforts that you've made in that regard. And you're going to ask me that knowing that I will probably be somewhat critical of fair trade? Yeah, that's. this is a learning opportunity for Cool. Well, one of my favorite parts that came out of the traceability report is that we found out we were paying much higher prices than fair trade prices. And that's our average. That's not on, obviously one, one of our coffees would have been more expensive, but on our average is more expensive than, or the price is higher than what we would have paid for fair trade priced coffee. And the, you know, there are a few different criticisms and some even refer to the status notion we just talked about in in regard to food and beverage versus maybe in the tech industry in the United States or elsewhere in, in the world, in the coffee growing world, a fair trade certified farmer may feel different than a non-fair trade certified farmer. And that that's a little bit of a misnomer. You would have to co-op your coffee with other farms to be in the fair trade group. But if you were in fair trade, you're obviously getting a higher price and that could create kind of an odd societal structure issue. Um, But from my standpoint, you know, fair trade price with coffee um, tracks the C market, the coffee commodity market. 
and it gives a um, before a harvest is found or a harvest is is has yielded um, the fair trade industry will negotiate a price with a co-op a, a grouping of farmers over the sea market price to guarantee them more than commodity price for their coffee okay. but they'll do that before the harvest yield the problem is all during that um, time of harvest the coffee market is in fluctuation and fair trade will not match that fluctuation change so what we did in our traceability report is uncover that enough of the coffees that we are actually either boots on the ground connecting with farmers and able to pay them much higher prices because we see the value, the core value in that coffee, its quality, its story, etc. We can pay more for that coffee than they could ever dream to get with fair trade or obviously through the commodities market. Now, some of the farmer's coffee will have to trade at that lower end because not all of your coffee is going to reach what is called specialty grading. And if it's not reaching that mark, then they have the opportunity to sell it for less money. But anything above that quality standard, the market should be the judge, in my opinion, on how high the coffee can go. And if a farmer's done an incredible job, we want to reward that farmer. And if we've had a couple of successful crops from a farmer, we want to then engage them for years and promise that we'll be there to pay them. And that's one of the things that we uncovered with the traceability report that we're, we're doing far better than we thought we were. And this was our first time doing that. And, and is that the, so, so is the mechanism that you just explained of, you know, re-engaging with them, getting some sort of advanced order in place. Also how you ensure, basically, I don't want to say you're bidding against yourself, but basically... hundred oh, percent we're bidding against ourselves, but bidding for ourselves long-term. Yeah. Because there will be times, this is an agricultural product, we may have two or three harvests from a farm that blow our minds, right? And then quality starts to go downhill, not because the farmer hasn't done something. Maybe it was the there wasn't as much rain, or maybe they had a light frost a couple times on these trees. We're still going to buy that coffee, though, because, and that's bidding against ourselves in some senses, but, and we might sometimes increase our, our cost to the farmers. But long term, we're creating a sustainable relationship with these folks to then be able to, in Pittsburgh and beyond, share an amazing coffee, an amazing story with someone that you may be able to drink their coffee for 10 plus years, which is really fun. Yeah. And if they have, you know, the, and, I could be completely off here, but if they have the right techniques, if they have the right beans, if they have the right people and all that to give you that high capacity for high end, then you're basically, it's almost like an insurance policy that that will continue to exist. Right. Exactly. Makes sense. Tell me about designing. So, so we, we talked about this at the beginning, but I just want to go a little bit deeper on it. The way I've described before I knew you, and it, it perfectly fits now that I've met you, that, that you would create such a place. But I've said that uh, Commonplace is a place with soul. You walk into certain corporate restaurants or coffee shops or what have you, and it feels like you are walking through a cookie cutter, which can be really well designed. It's, it's not that there, there wasn't design and aesthetic choices made, but man, I've been to uh, you know New York, Poughkeepsie, LA, and Hong Kong, and they all look exactly the same to some degree and you walk into certain places that have been 
designed almost in an exclusive mindful way and they're just there's a different feeling when you walk in the venue so how does how does one accomplish that as as someone who wants to accomplish that with my own spaces now and in the future what advice can you give me well i don't know i'm i guess like if there is a design with commonplace historically it's been anti-design okay interesting. Um, which i don't know <laughs> i don't even know what that means i just know that you know, we were, we were acquiring lived in spaces, you know, either formerly coffee housed or otherwise lived in spaces. And we were kind of trying to make it our own. Um, you know, that's, I don't know, that's such a fascinating conversation too. Just in, I absolutely, in, in fact, in, later this evening, I have a, um, a training with one of our staffs about this very notion of how, space translates to guests walking into the space and it's always baffling to me and I'm going to talk about this tonight at how you can walk into a space as a guest as a customer as a first timer and you can almost feel a manager or an owner you can feel their presence like what they were doing what's you know um I don't know how to translate that. I don't know how to take like what, what was the magic thing that happened to yeah. make this work other than the fact that as we have gone into spaces, we have been tireless, sweaty, tired in trying to like figure out what's going to happen here. What are we doing here? How are we going to spend time here? And then over time as we're letting, you know, the doors are unlocked and now people are coming in, we're engaging with them and we're responding to their needs and we're being kind of in a way, and I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but like authentically ourselves, right? Like we're not, we never had the capital to do this, but we haven't gone to an architect or a formal design company to say, all right, what's, what's the trend right now? What lighting do I need? In fact, if there's one thing commonplace has failed on, it's lighting. It's terrible. Sometimes I'm, I'm in there. I'm like, how do people read in here? You know? <laughs> um, so we could use help on that, but maybe if we got too much help, then it wouldn't feel as, what's the word you use? Soulful? Soul? Man, you've, you've gotten me like deep in my core, like six times during this conversation. That might by be a new way. PR. So, um, way to go. I feel known. Yeah. Well, I, I, I it, <laughs> it's, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but you, you, when you interface with someone's life's work, and, and I have a, a very good family friend by the name of Henry Thorne who makes these robotics products for, for kids. He, he was the co-founder of Four Moms and some other associated products. And he, he takes you through one of these pieces of machinery that he has put his brain and, and sweat and soul, just like you said, into designing. And you just consume it in a different way. It's, it's clear mm, that this was not just thrown off yeah. the shelf here someone has put an exorbitant amount of effort into it. And there's something to us as humans that when you commune with anything like that, regardless regardless of whether or not you are an expert in coffee shops, an expert in baby appliances, there's something to just the feeling of being in the presence of, of craftsmanship. I think it's why people talk about the documentary Hero Dreams of Sushi, which mm. is even if you're not a sushi fanatic, you watch someone pour that much of themselves into something that is on the surface seems relatively simple. And there's just something timeless about that. I was just asked by one of my staff who's doing some work in our kind of marketing and communications area in commonplace. And she asked, 
for me, and I forget what the project is. At some level, we're going to be referencing the original store. And your question just made me think of my answer to her when she said, well, you know, will you describe it again? Will you describe the original store again? When we walked into that space, it had been a coffee house and it was, it was in pretty rough shape. The ceiling, the roof was leaking through the ceiling and there were three little puddles in the space, which was interesting. And the shop had started in 1994 and it had like yellow and pink sponge paint on the walls. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, um, it was getting dated, right? It felt old. And the way I described it in the answer to Abby was I said, you know, when we walked in, I was in love with this space, not because it was lovable, but because I loved it. And I saw like the future potential in what we were going to try to build there. And through that love, it became lovable. Like people started to get excited about that space, not because it was in a great location. I mean, our original location, if you haven't visited it, please do, because you'll be like, how in the world did the, like it, if I was working with someone opening a coffee house, I would tell them not to open here. Wow. It's up a flight of stairs to the right in the back of a strip mall, not in a close proximity to the university at IUP. You know, it's down the hill. So you, if you come down as a student, you've got to go back up a hill and you know, it's got a great parking lot. There's some perks, right? It's a weird building, but we loved it. And which you'll find out very soon in the next chapter of your personal life, what that means. Because there's a lot of reasons to not love a newborn child, but you love it. And it's incredible. I cannot wait. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about personal stuff. No, that's, that's, that's okay. <laughs> Edit. I, uh... Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask about two last things and then we'll aim towards wrapping up here. I feel like I could do this for hours. Hopefully we will again sometime soon. Sounds fun. But before we get to our standard last questions, have you heard of bottomless? No? I don't think so. What is it? So it's a smart Wi-Fi connected scale that someone puts in their home and you put, I have this in my house, you put your coffee bag on top of the scale. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And then it auto ships. Who is this? I know this person. Scale, Michael or, Meyer. Not Mike Meyer. Not, not Mike Meyer. <laughs> no, I heard it. They got some attention over the pandemic, right? Uh, they definitely did well. Yeah. They, they, they like had some crazy customer yeah. growth. Uh, they ra- raised around from YC and a follow along seed round. Oh, wow. And uh, are, are doing relatively well, but I don't know if you haven't, yeah, yeah, I, I understand the concept. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. Yeah, so name. is that the type of thing that you would consider plugging into? Is that not your bag? Like, what's your thought when you when you see that in, like, the general coffee industry? <laughs> so are you asking from the standpoint of Bottomless being a subscription that is is mindful of your quantity? Like, would I get into that or would I get into just subscription in general? Bottomless, it, it's a startup. It is mindful to your quantity. It's making sure his his big thing is there is a tangible difference between fresh roasted beans and beans that are not so fresh roasted as I'm sure you're cognizant of. And he's talking well, about actually, I mean, there's a lot of research right now that's showing. I mean, we do know for sure that a lot of what is intense about coffee is lost within or not within, but around day 13, 14. Okay. But there is some research done being done right now. Um, on aging coffee after roasting, you know, we've had, we've, we've had experientially just, just ourselves, we've had an example where we've had natural processed Ethiopians that on day 40, day 50 are incredible in different flavors that you would ever have had during that within month. But, but that's a side point. I love the fact that they're trying to help 
the consumer be mindful of their quantity and things like that and pay attention to potentially some of the coffee science. So I'm not against it. I do have like a bit of an allergy to, um, and this is probably a downfall of mine as an entrepreneur, but I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to tell you when to buy again. We do have a subscription right now and you can cancel any time and we're, you know, fire us, man. If we suck, fire us, you know, like don't keep buying. So I think I have a little allergy there to just, cause it's, it's automatic, right? When you set how low your I'll, bag I'll, gets. I'll get a ping. It says, Hey, it looks like you're low. Oh, okay. We'll send it so to you So you still tomorrow. have to make a volition. It, it's saying, unless you say otherwise, we're just going to send you the next it. one. Okay. Because I think the, the consumer that they're trying to empathize with is someone who is juggling a lot in their life, busy, wants yeah. the good coffee. And is like, I don't want to like have two days where I just don't have a bag because right. I forgot to order it or whatever the thing may be. My life had those fluctuations. I think that's who they're they're tailoring it to. And the analogy they've used is it's streaming for stuff. So you you, you stream your Netflix video. It's like I want it now, and that's when it mm. loads, as opposed right. to having the whole hard drive of videos. And so for your things, let's have less in the pantry. Let's have less stuff, you know, going bad on shelves, and have it more get there when we need it type of uh, framework. That's interesting. I'd I'd love to explore that Netflix meets coffee analogy some more. Yeah. And the expectation of a consumer. Maybe that's why cups of coffee will never go away. Never. Because that's the way, it's almost an immediate way for me to see the similarity. But that's very fascinating how their subscription model is working. I like it. Yeah. And then my last question, I, I teased it early on, uh, Italian motorcycles. Tell me what's up. Oh, man. Teach me something. There is nothing like hitting an apex of a turn on a V-twin Ducati. It's it's incredible. The torque of a Ducati mixed with its just silk smoothness is unmatched. So, you know, Ducati's hit my heart from that standpoint and aesthetically as well. And all all things Italian, really. Moto Guzzi, you know, the sky's the limit. I don't know. I just have a ton of respect for that craft and what goes into it. So often I walk up to a motorcycle and I just can't imagine, you know, I, I think about the, the number of ingredients it takes to make a cup of coffee and to create a coffee business is it's interesting. Right. But like to have everything composed for a motorcycle to actually work, it's pretty amazing. Um, but I just have a blast on it. I love it. I can't get over it. The aesthetics of an Italian motorcycle are unreal. So right. if, if you're ever wanting an experience let me know i love everything from very slow scooters to way too fast that i should be then i should be going motorcycles i'm so. more on the slow scooter side i love it being i probably <laughs> have more fun on my scooters than i do on my motorcycles it's quiet it's easy yeah you know having a cup of coffee you know we probably shouldn't say this on air but you know with a scooter you don't have to clutch and change gear so having a cup of coffee on a really slow scooter is like oh, I, I think that's that's, that's reasonably chill we're not telling people to go base do not do it though <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun uh, especially in a slow town like indiana yeah you know having a slow scooter on a sunday afternoon in indiana is like one of the best things just get lost in the woods for a little while yeah. Well, I'm going to have to go check out the uh, Indiana location here. and, and see. Actually, you can right now and win a prize. Oh, yeah? Are you, did you follow the Coffee Quest? It just launched two days ago. Tell, tell the good people about it. If only five of our locations are included, but the Indiana location is included. If you visit all five and you make a social media post, that you get a little sticker saying that you've been there. 
and you post about which location you got that sticker, if you fill out all five, you're entered to win a grand prize, which is actually pretty nice. And you have one choice in a the Ducati. grand... Oh, yeah, <laughs> a Ducati. We should work on that. <laughs> as much as I talk about Ducati, they should they should be hanging out with us. Yeah. Um, but the along with other nice prizes, you can pick either an hour of training at our headquarters or an hour with me to have coffee. That's part of the grand prize, which we have an inside bet at our HQ that no one's going to pick me. That's my side of the bet. And if, if someone picks me, then I owe HQ staff trams for lunch and vice versa. If people don't pick me, then I get lunch paid for at trams. Nice. So. Well, I wouldn't, I have a lot of, uh, baby prep and, and house renovation work to be done, but I wouldn't be surprised if Hannah takes a swing at that, uh, that raffle for winter, uh, for folks that want to learn more, check out all the things that you guys are doing. Can we provide some digital coordinates where people can learn more about you and about commonplace? Yeah. Commonplacecoffee.com is easy. We're on Facebook and Instagram. I think there's a little bit of presence on TikTok, although that's a fascinating experience to go down the TikTok rabbit hole. I'm, I'm brand new with it, so I'm still baffled. LinkedIn a little bit. Um, or, you know, reach out to us through the website and pick a time to come to our facility. Love to show you what's going on. Right on. Strongly recommend it. Going to link all that going deep there and com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. It's also in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before we let you go, TJ, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. You sure? Oh, I'm sure. All right. This was tough. So for those of you that don't know, Commonplace Coffee got its name from Walt Whitman a poem in Song of um, Song of Myself called The Commonplace. And the poem, not only did we steal the name, uh, but it just so embodies who Julie and I strive to be and, and hope to live our lives every day. Um, so Walt Whitman's a huge part of my life and has affected me deeply. And as I was trying to think of something to share today, I thought of this small segment of a song of myself from 51. Um, and it says, do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And I remember one of the first times I read this, like being just struck at how complicated we can be as humans. And especially now it seems that this is a very, timely message of reading this in the context of how you engage with others. So the challenge I'd like to, to kind of share with myself included is to be gracious to one another. That's the perfect note to wrap up on because we all need a little grace. I ask for grace every single day. Beautiful. Um, TJ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I love talking with you. It was my pleasure. We just went deep with TJ Fairchild. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with TJ. If you enjoyed this, then you might also enjoy my conversation with Patrick Coletti. Patrick is someone who built a very successful healthcare 
software company, but he also shares TJ's love of coffee and they happen to be buddies. So I'm going to link that in the show notes to this episode. We have all sorts of fantastic episodes in our back catalog. If you ever want a recommendation, Aaron Watson on LinkedIn or Aaron Watson 59 on Twitter is the best place to reach out to learn more. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.